Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It was Wednesday, the 20th of March, 1996, and Australia's Super League players were joined by British Rugby League boss Morris Lindsay to triumphantly launch Global League, a new rugby league competition that all involved were to emphasise was to operate completely independently of News Limited. The courts would see things differently, and Global League was shut down, but not before causing a player strike that would see forfeits declared in six of the ten matches scheduled for Round 1 of the 1996 ARL season. This is Part 2 of Together Again, the 27th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Wonderful, mate. How are you? Uh, Very excited for this one, mate. Part two of three, our 27th chapter, together again, all about the players and the monstrous efforts on both sides uh, to get them playing in some form for 1996. Well, I don't want to cast dispersions on your titling but after last week's episode they're not that together (laughs) well we're going to get there i promise (laughs) in most cases stay tuned for part three for some exceptions to that but we left the story with the situation very much in limbo round one fast approaching the players not yet committed to playing in the arl and in fact at this point very much committed to not playing in the arl And the mysterious group of 10 meeting in Sydney to discuss what possible alternatives there might be. (laughs) Do they leave the word imbeciles off the end of that? (laughs) (laughs) I've got to say, though, I remember when we used to be like anxious about not having a draw before the comp. Not having a comp before the comp is uh, extra pressure. But so around this point in time when there's all this speculation flying, you started hearing about this plan B. So a, pl- a secret plan B was being talked about. And this is clearly something that didn't just start, you know, in mid-March. This is something that it seems had been a contingency plan for some time. Was plan B uh, well thought out and uh, practical? Or? Even more than that. So, <laughs> uh, so there, there was a lot of talk about plan B and what the players could do. And a lot of talk that uh, this was in the Rugby League week. Plan B has been mentioned from the outset, along with the affirmation that it's bulletproof. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) To which I don't have the exact quote here, but I've got to give it up for Phil Gould, who responded to this with, well, if Plan B was so good, that should have been their Plan A. (laughs) Yeah. So the players were, you know, as we know, renowned legal experts. They were very much of the opinion that with Plan B, they couldn't go wrong and they were going to get their way and play in 1996, not for the ARL. Just out of interest, when the appeal was upheld, were the players happy to let the judge tell them where they could play then? (laughs) So it wasn't long before Plan B, the secret unnamed Plan B, was given a name. Uh, And that name was, of course, Global League. AKA the No Arcos Club. (laughs) So Global League was announced almost immediately after the talks with the ARL 
Are there, you know, famous 15 demands? After those talks broke down, the next step was to announce Global League. Talk about not having a ring to it. Like, it's, what, one more syllable than super? And it's so try-hard, isn't it? Yeah, it sucks, yeah. (laughs) Really bad name, but this is what they had, you know. I think the meeting with the ARL was on the 20th. By the 21st, Global League had been announced. So they were all guns blazing on setting up their own competition. So this legal loophole came about because of the lifting of this no-play, no-pay order, which meant that they could quite happily set up this competition while still receiving News Limited coin. <laughs> Every time I hear no-pay, no-play, I think of no-hat, no-play with <laughs> the Legionnaire's hats in primary school. I don't know why. <laughs> Running around the quadrangle. And the big talk about Global League was that this was a 100% player-driven venture. So this was a meeting of the minds (laughs) to start their own competition that wasn't run by the ARL, also wasn't run by Super League or News Limited. This was just the players wanting to play some footy and getting together to, you know, Glenn Lazarus, I think, was in charge of scheduling and, you know. I would pay any amount of money I had to watch a comp that genuinely run by players. So Roy Masters had a great response to this. The very idea that players would, of their own volition, book flights with airlines, negotiate with stadiums, arrange ambulances to be at grounds and take out insurance cover was ludicrous. Players can't be counted on to bring both boots to a football match. (laughs) For the past 10 years, they've been so spoilt by having individual water bottles filled, football jumpers dry cleaned, individual lunches packed and asthma sprays provided, that the very idea of delegating the team prop to bring the staminade barrel is laughable. (laughs) I'm just picturing... um... Ferguson and Dugan on the roof <laughs> and they're like signing documents at the same time as like sticking out the finger to the camera. <laughs> but in the players' defence, they had recruited IMG to administer the competition. So the players got the phone book out and found IMG and... Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> the players were very much aware of who IMG were and what they do before, you know, they decided to start this competition. So IMG was a company that was going to do all this logistical work and set up the competition, take care of everything. The players would just have to turn up and play. And the clubs would be, you know, the same clubs they were with, but they couldn't be called the Canberra Raiders. So I haven't got a definitive answer as to whether it would have been the Canberra Vikings or something similar, or would it have just been Canberra Canberra, with some kind of plain shirt and, you know... Well, remember as a kid when you get a, a sports video game and they didn't have the license? Yeah. And they make the funny names up? Yeah, yeah. It was tragic. Yeah. <laughs> if that was your actual real-life <laughs> comp, you'd just be shattered. But the important thing to remember is that this was a player-driven concern that wasn't in any way, shape or form being run by News Limited. And that was a directive coming from the top. So Rupert Murdoch was actually asked about Global League and he said... Nothing to do with me. <laughs> I trust that guy in my life. <laughs> uh, and this almost immediately led to some questions about how independent this independent venture really was. <laughs> uh, some of the questions that were raised at this point in time were, one, the name Global Super League had been registered by News Limited a month earlier. Two, uh, Morris Lindsay had been brought in to run Global League. Of course, he was in Australia on an unconnected jaunt. uh, But while he was there, he decided, you know, yeah, the players want me. I'll, you know, step in. Three, they'd arranged a deal with ANSET, who were 
50% owned by News Limited to be their official carrier. Uh, they'd also managed to wrangle a apparel deal with Nike. Anstead. So was Phil Hart consulted on this? <laughs> the Oz Rock Cafe owner that was uh, against Anstead? He, he would have been blowing up about this deal. Um, but so they'd arranged an apparel deal with Nike. They were in talks with a TV deal with Channel 7, who were 15% owned by News Limited. Their headquarters were in a building in the city shared with News Limited aligned lawyers. Their marketing director was former and future News Limited employee, Steve Crawley. Wow. So a very independent venture, but, you know, raises some questions. <laughs> Steve Crawley's the uh, current boss of Foxtel and brother of Paul Crawley. Yeah. As we know from Twitter, is no fence to <laughs> <laughs> But maybe the biggest uh, red flag raised came from Morris Lindsay, who uh, had sent a letter to English club chairman on the 15th of March. So this was six days before Global League saying that, I've also been talking to our Super League colleagues and News Limited about an alternative suggestion, which will be considered and decided upon on Monday. Uh, And the announcement of Global League was on Tuesday. So (laughs) it was way off. So, you know, I I think unreliable narrator, we can leave Lindsay's letter aside. We've often compared him to Arco, the English Arco, but I can just imagine if it was reversed, Arco going over there and doing that. Yeah, yeah. And so Global League was now where the Super League players were going to be performing, which meant that the ARL had no Super League players for round one. But so we'll get into how legal and independent Global League was in the end and what would happen with it. But in the meantime, the ARL had a round one about to start that now officially would have no Super League players. So this meant that there were 10 games scheduled. Only four of them could go ahead. So there were four games involving just ARL teams uh, and the rest of the games would be forfeited. If you have a competition that isn't under eight soccer and there's forfeits, your competition is no good. Yeah. But interestingly enough, one of those Super League teams actually received two competition points for that round one, which was the Warriors who were playing the Broncos, uh, and the Warriors decided that they would field a team, and so they effectively boycotted the boycott and were going to go with a full-strength team. That's brilliant rugby league skullduggery. <laughs> Cheap two points. That's definitely what it looks like, but I think it signals something about the Warriors' connection with Super League, which was a very tenuous connection, and there were a lot of things going on with New Zealand Rugby League at the time, which made the prospect of the Warriors going back to the ARL, like an actual possibility. You think it was cold feet induced? So basically what happened was there was some board upheaval at the Warriors with two Super League aligned directors leaving and being replaced by people who weren't so, you know, all for Super League. So the Warriors going to Super League in the first place was kind of like forced upon them by the players and the New Zealand Rugby League both going to Super League. That kind of left them in a position where it was the only option they had. So at this point, with Super League seemingly dead and buried, some of that ARL sympathy kind of came back to the boil and and there was talk of what is actually going to be best for New Zealand football. So um, Auckland Rugby League was obviously like a powerhouse in that country and they were ARL sympathetic. (laughs) So, so, uh, yeah, again, like it's exhibit, you know, X about the you know the mess the international game was in as a result of all this Super League stuff, but it was kind of a an actual prospect that 
the Warriors could go back to the ARL. Let me ask you a serious question. How in the name of hell did the game ever recover from this? (laughs) (laughs) So one of the other big issues was Graham Carden, who was the New Zealand boss who had, you know, he was basically the figurehead for New Zealand and Super League. Uh, He was viewed as little more than a crook in ARL circles, and that would actually be ratified legally (laughs) some years later when he served some jail on a fraud charge. um, But I love... uh, Roy Masters actually noted the ARL accused him of being a used car salesman, a charge he strongly refuted, saying that, yes, while he did manage a car yard, it was new cars only. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And actually, in late February, Quayle had actually been over to Auckland. You know, we mentioned the talk about maybe setting up a Wellington team or a, you know, arrival to the Warriors also being discussed was getting the Warriors back into the fold. What's the obsession with cannibalizing markets? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I should say it wasn't just the Warriors. It was getting the New Zealand Rugby League back as well. Right. So some of those same tensions with the Warriors were true of the New Zealand Rugby League itself. So Quail was jumping in to you know have a real go at that. So I think like ultimately... And I don't have like, you know, detailed research for this, but to me, there's three main elements that stopped New Zealand and all the Warriors coming back to the ARL. One is the threat of, you know, legal reprisal from News Limited. I don't think they were in a situation where they wanted to be tangled up in court for a year over something like this. Two, the fact that the players were still signed with Super League. So if they did go back to the ARL, what would be going back? And thirdly, yeah, it wasn't just getting the Warriors, it was getting the New Zealand Rugby League and vice versa. So it kind of like all had to fall into place at the same time. And the ARL wasn't the most attractive place to be going back to. No, and there'd been long-standing tension between the two of them and the view that the New Zealand Rugby League hadn't been adequately supported. And that was one of the things Quayle offered on his visit was a promise of tests every year between Australia and New Zealand. He's going to ref it fair, Nickham. Yeah. But so that couldn't get over the line. But in the meantime, once the court judgment came down, the Warriors basically said straight away, well, yeah, we're coming back to the ARL. At first they said, we're keen to play, uh, but we don't know what's happening with the players yet. So we don't know what sort of team we're going to be able to supply. But by the time that all this was happening with the, the threat of a forfeit of round one, they'd already basically threatened players with the sack if they didn't come back and play. But so the Warriors were back, but they had no one to play against. All the other Super League teams were not putting teams up. So the ARL was left with four games for that weekend uh, with the marquee Friday night fixture that everyone had been salivating for for 12 months, really. West versus Illawarra. (laughs) Uh, Wins stadium on the Friday night. (laughs) The ARL must run the game. (laughs) Arco actually turned up at that to launch the season before the crowd uh, and give one of his Churchillian pregame addresses. So uh, I'm just going to read this. He said, News Corporation has ridden roughshod. They set out to steal the game lock, stock and barrel. But let me tell you, they're not going to have any luck. I never thought I'd see the day when clubs didn't have the guts to tell players what their contractual obligations were. The game has made wealthy men of these Super League players. No one would have heard of them if it hadn't been for Rugby League. He was apparently close to tears, you know, delivering that address. In front of how many people? (laughs) I'll get to that. (laughs) Let's park that for now. Uh, (laughs) 
so yeah, so Arco was on full attack mode at the thought of, you know, these selfish players and clubs forfeiting the round. Before that Illawarra game, earlier in the week, he'd made a strong statement calling Super League Blooper League. <laughs> Which, <laughs> all right, undeniably, sick burn. You know, he got them, you know. Undercut by the fact that that line was delivered at the season launch of the Gold Coast Chargers at Carrara Oval. <laughs> but it's funny, uh, West, they played Illawarra that uh, night. They were coming out really strong with a lot of their statements. So they came out publicly and, and or they told Roy Masters at least that after that Illawarra game, they had a game scheduled against Brisbane on the following Sunday. And they said that they were planning to go to the Golden Slipper instead of preparing for that game because they didn't think it would be on. When there was the prospect of maybe the points from that round one being just forfeited and starting afresh, um, West players threatened to get on the drink if that happened. (laughs) It just seems that West really wanted to get on the drink. (laughs) So what does that that threat mean? (laughs) They're not going to play first. They're just going to be pissed the whole time. Yeah. (laughs) Jesus Christ. But uh, you mentioned the crowds, and i got to say, as a whole, not great. So <laughs> so I'll read the four crowd figures. So that Steelers game was actually the best crowd of the weekend. So they drew 9,744, maybe in part enticed by the laser show that was put on before the game, <laughs> in addition to Arco's address. Carlos asked, did Arco see Rupi Murdoch on the hill having a pie? <laughs> no, and yeah, I mean, I'm sure he was looking for him while he was there personally uh, having a beer with each and every person on that hill. North's defeated Gold Coast in front of 8,291 at Carrara. Not bad, actually. Not bad, yeah. The Roosters beat the Tigers at the SFS in front of 5,631. The round was finished by Manly thrashing Souths at Brookvale uh, before 6,532 people. The Roosters crowd, with their success over the last couple of 15 years or so, we sort of forget they were a disgrace. Mm. 5,000 a week at the 40,000 stadium. They were an actual disgrace. They've done a great job in rectifying it, actually. A decent job. Well, I mean, it'll be really interesting if and when they ever become a bad team again. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, they're famous for not having many supporters, but, you know, they've been a very successful team for quite a while. So if they did ever get into one of these sustained lulls, Mm. you wonder, like, how far it would fall. But just the optics, to use an American word, on having your flagship stadium yeah, yeah, with 5,000 yeah. people a yeah. week. It was just embarrassing. Yeah, totally. But, I mean, embarrassing is the word for that weekend. So those total four games, 31,000 people. I went and looked into it. At that point in time, by round one, 1996, the Broncos had beaten that combined figure <laughs> 30 times <laughs> in the seven years before. But, I mean, uh, with all the problems, you can't really blame the people. No. That SFS crowd... Uh, was down by one with one fan kicked out for handing out Global League flyers. (laughs) (laughs) But another interesting thing about those crowds is that uh, there was some sign leading up to the round that there were going to be poor crowds. So Frank Stanton at Manly said that they'd only had 52 pre-sold tickets and he said usually for a Souths game we get 590 pre-sales. Is Frank Stanton running a Sydney comedy? Like, that's pathetic. (laughs) In the Roy Masters article that quoted that, Masters said, no doubt Super League would claim pre-sales of 590 
are not indicative of a healthy game, which is true. But I'm also thinking about 1996, you know, like what were your options for buying tickets like beforehand? Especially in Manly where yeah, everyone's yeah. just rocking up in boardies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess you get them at the Leagues Club or, you know, yeah. local sports store or whatever. But, you yeah, know, yeah. I mean, I don't remember ever buying a ticket before no, the game. So I don't think 590 is as bad as it sounds. I think you had to have them posted out to you mm. from memory. Yeah, right. But so regardless of those logistics, it was a bad start to the competition and a very bad look for the ARL. So one of those fans who was there at Brookvale was there to sum it all up, and that was Thomas Keneally, you know, Booker Prize winner, one of Australia's great authors. So Blood at Whistle Ref. Yeah, so someone who could be relied upon to sum up the situation with grace and class and something really erudite, no doubt. So they went to Keneally for a quote to which he responded, the season is already fucked. <laughs> Do you know how much I love that he's a football fan? Yeah, yeah. I don't love that I think he started a West fan and converted to Manly at some point. So, well, I mean, he's established his Manly bona fides. You, you've got those guys wanting to get on the drink. <laughs> you went somewhere committed to the sport. <laughs> uh, and so that was basically the end of round one, and things were looking very grim. Even Arco's perpetual positivity must have taken a dent. Oh, yeah, for sure. But that dent was buffered out a couple of days later when that no play, no pay clause was ratified in court. So basically, the injunction that had been lifted was reapplied. The no play, no pay would stand, which meant that the Super League players had the option of either continuing with Global League for no money and not getting that news limited money in advance or going back to the ARL. That really test your commitment to the vision. <laughs> and so that decision came down early on the morning of the 25th of March with Global League found to be undermining the ARL competition and thus against the initial court orders. And you got to think that must have been one of the quickest decisions <laughs> <laughs> like ever handed down. <laughs> Does this competition undermine the ARL? Somewhat. <laughs> Given that it's the exact same thing with the one word change. <laughs> uh, and the other interesting thing to come of that in a legal sense was the edict that the ARL should have the benefit of its victory, which I think it's pretty fair. But that wasn't met with universal approval with counsel for Super League Simon Gillies uh, coming out and saying <laughs> they've got a hide to ask for that. It's against everything that any fair-minded person would see as right. <laughs> And so basically, Global League's four-day existence came to an end and the players were left in a bind. But before we get to what they did, the really interesting thing to me is that basically at this point, after this final judgment came down, the players sought legal advice and the legal expert said that the likelihood of Global League starting was quite hopeless. So in a legal sense, it was dead and buried. But what would have been the legal advice prior to this that said it had any chance of getting up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe they just ignored it. I think we have hopefully established that the idea that this was a purely player-run independent <laughs> competition is absolutely farcical. And to me then the question is why News Limited were so willing to go ahead with this that they must have known from all their legal advice would have been that this isn't going to work. Well, there's a little song by the um, Eagles called Desperado. 
I think it's more than that, though. Like, I think it is just the act of undermining, the act of keeping this going and, you know, doing all they can to chop the arrow off at the legs any way they could. Well, yeah, but I mean, what else were they going to do? Like, the court case was 100 nil. It's like. But they were appealing. And to me, this is like weakening their own product. Yeah. They won the appeal. But everyone was so sick of it that, like, yeah. you know, it had little chance of achieving success. I mean, I think we started this season giving the ARL some, you know, pretty persistent knocks. But the last couple of chapters, like, I feel like oh. Super League have, regardless of the morality of it, I think it's just bad business. It's the game you couldn't shoot straight. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. You're right about that, though. I can't believe there'll be legal advice saying go ahead with this. Yeah. This is a genius idea. Yeah. I mean, there was an appeal going ahead. To me, the logical thing is play football, hopefully we win the appeal, and we go from there. Probably the legal thing is we'll sit there and go on, never dealing with rugby league people again. <laughs> this is fucking nightmare. <laughs> so basically, at 9 o'clock, the judges went behind the curtain to you know work out their decision. They came back at 10 o'clock, shut down Global League, and the rest of the day was a frenzy of players calling each other, coaches calling coaches, administrators calling players and other administrators, and basically, Quayle got on the blow with all of them and said, basically, look, it's over. Come back. Your players aren't going to get paid. We want to go ahead with round two. We want to get on with this season. So what do you think? And so at four o'clock in the Arvo of the 25th of March, Canterbury announced that their players would be coming back. Over the course of the afternoon and evening, most of the other clubs also announced that they were back. Uh, and that was basically it. That was the end of Global League. Uh, and the players were returning to play in the ARL that they had sworn they would never play for again. <laughs> you can understand the players coming back, like, you know, you're not going to get paid. All right, I'll come back and play. You can understand that decision, but, like, it's major egg on face with how adamant they were and, you know, all yeah. the, the things I, I will never, ever, I just cannot imagine a scenario where I will ever play for that ARL again. But do you reckon they were filthy on the courts? Yeah, of course they were. Dirty on them? Yeah. Ian Heads, and I think this is probably getting a bit back at some of the <laughs> the bagging he'd copped from Super League over the last few weeks. He said, I think for those players there would have been more public credibility if there had been a respectable pause, time to consider such things as principles and backing up your word before putting your toe back in the water. Oh, Ian, that's as vitriolic as a <laughs> dignified man can get. <laughs> And once again, the public recipient of most of this egg was Laurie Daly, who had come out the day before this final judgment and said, I can honestly say I won't be playing this weekend, and I can honestly say I'm 99.9% .9 sure that I won't play this year. And then a day later saying that, yes, he would be coming back and playing. <laughs> um, Daly had a good defense for this. He said, I don't see this as playing in the ARL. I'm playing in the ARL competition, but for the Canberra Raiders. <laughs> Case closed. <laughs> uh, and this was followed up by his uh, Sunday Telegraph column the following Sunday where he said, I suppose I always knew I was going to play football at some stage this year. So 25th of March, I can honestly say I'm 99.9% .9 sure I will never play. Oh, I won't play this year. 31st of March, I suppose I always knew I'd play this year. 0.1%. <laughs> <laughs> the best part about football players is as soon as they're back on the field, it sort of washes away all the sins. It's like, oh, good, you're yeah, playing football again. Yeah, yeah. And 
I mean, this didn't happen instantly with Daly. You know, he was the face of this Super League arrogance and, you know, the entitled players, all the rest of it. You know, I'm sure the continuous call team and, and the like were, were fielding a lot of calls about Daly and, you know, like... The Robinson brothers must have had some uh, <laughs> some good parody songs. And I guess a ex-player proxy for all this public sentiment came from Tommy Radonikus, who uh, in a statement said, I was very disappointed in Laurie Daly watching him on television the other night. Does he remember where he started off down in June? He was nothing then. If not for the ARL, he would never have pulled on an Australian jumper. Yet you bet he had a tear in his eye when he helped win the Ashes for Australia. If Laurie wants to go play Australian rules, let him. Three years down the track, Laurie Daly will, in a sense, be forgotten. If you ask a 20-year-old who Tommy Rodonicus is, and if I wasn't West coach, he wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> Laurie Daly has certainly gone down in my estimation. I have no sympathy for him at all. <laughs> uh, so Laurie returned serve in a newspaper column. So I'm a big head, am I? For the past week or so, I've had to read and hear of people like Tommy Radonikus and Rex Mossop calling me everything under the sun. It goes on from there, a lengthy refute of the claims. But the one thing I like is when he's talking about, when I said I'm not going back to the ARL, you know, I meant it. He said, I've said it and I'm bound to stick by it. Even Rex Mossop and Tommy Radonikus would agree. If you put your name to something, you can't back down. If you do, what's your word worth? You can't have go having two bites at it. It's like betting on a horse 10 to 1 and seeing it blow out to 50s. You can't go bluing. You've made your decision. You have to cop it. Uh, two things there. Firstly, if I put money on a horse at 10 to 1 and it blows out to 50s, I'm cheering. Like, that's five times my return. No, he's talking about SP bookie fixed odds. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I get you. If he was talking total as an agency board, you'd be, you'd be laughing. Uh, and secondly, that is hitting Rex Moss and Tommy Radonikus where it hurts, <laughs> saying, well, I said it, so I can't back down. <laughs> like, if there's any two men who wouldn't back down, that <laughs> they'll, like, hold these, like, 60-year-long grievances because of one thing they said. Oh, yeah, of course. But he's breaking his word. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this column was before uh, he, he'd announced it. Right. Thing about that is, it's like all these ex-players. They keep saying these people were nothing all the time. Yeah, it's like they're still human beings. Like, <laughs> they weren't like complete pieces of garbage before the ARL. You know? <laughs> but like Tommy Rodonikus, if this happened in '78, I can see him going to Super League for money. Yeah, yeah. I want to look after my family. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like the way these players like were, you know, going on these kangaroo tours and living in squalor, you know, working as brickies, garbos, all the rest of it. Why wouldn't they have? Yeah. You know, like. Yeah, it's a rare player who came out publicly in, in support of the players, which, I mean, we talked about in the last episode, but I just find it really odd. It is odd. But luckily, the Tommy and Laurie feud was short-lived, so Tommy was the country coach that year. <laughs> Laurie Daly was named a captain, and in his book, Laurie said, I was a bit apprehensive when we went into camp. I'd never met Tommy before, for one thing, and after what had been said and written, I really didn't know what to expect. But Tommy was just great. We got on like a house on fire. And apart from anything else, I was impressed with his coaching knowledge. <laughs> you kind of feel like that was how it was always going to work out. Like they were going to get together, you know, have a punt, a few beers and go, oh, yeah, this bloke's all right. Yeah, he's one of the boys. I think there's a, he's laying on a big thick with saying he's impressed with his coaching abilities. <laughs> but all right, those early years with West, like he did like an awesome job. Like, yeah, true. You know, they made semifinals. Yeah, like true. He did the same with New South Wales. I don't know why I'm sticking the slipper on Tommy, but... Like, I mean, the time when West didn't do well, they had, like, the worst squad yeah. in, you that's, know... That's what I'm... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> basing it on. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, definitely he's out of step with the way 
modern coaching was going. Like he was out of step in 1997, let alone. He was in step with modern jib <laughs> building the gym. <laughs> but the really interesting thing to me with Laurie Daly is so much vitriol, so many like, you know, angry statements from ex-players, calls into sports radio, all the rest of it. I think it says a lot about the type of guy Laurie Daly is that like it pretty much just all got forgotten instantly. I think exactly the same thing. You know, he's just one of those guys. If that was Ricky Stewart, imagine it. Yeah. This came from later in 1996 and I'm going to read it. I'm going to redact the name of the second player mentioned because he plays a big part in part three of this chapter. But I think this says a lot about Laurie Daly and the way he was able to win the public back so instantly. The word professional is bandied about with such monotonous regularity in rugby league these days. It's become almost meaningless. Players tend to talk of football clubs as being really professional if they get the jumpers clean each week. (laughs) But two players who have operated to the very best meaning of the word, not for the things they say, but for the things they do on the football field, are Laurie Daly and Redacted. Their efforts last weekend were what professionalism is all about, true value for good reward. Neither of them was terribly popular for utterances during the recent unpleasantness, but both have proved themselves far too good to let bitterness affect their game. Daly was brilliantly dominant for the Raiders against Norths. So I think that's the other part of it. That was a a Norm Tasker column in Rugby League Week, by the way. It was always going to be on the field that did the talking as well. Yeah, it just fixes everything. Yeah. If you're a good player, (laughs) you can drink drive, you can (laughs) call people slave drivers, you can do whatever you want. (laughs) So with Daly and the rest of the players back, round two went ahead and it was all about getting back to work, back to business. And there was some reticence among Super League players about the kind of treatment they'd receive, but in the most part that got smoothed over quite quickly. And I think this John Plath quote is quite indicative of that. So Plath pleaded guilty to a tripping charge at the judiciary and had this to say about it. I suppose a few of us had some suspicions in the back of our minds but it seems the ARL has welcomed us back with open arms and is willing to let bygones be bygones. <laughs> <laughs> I love how if he got two weeks, it would have been like they've had it in for us from the start. <laughs> the minutia in rugby league is hysterical. Yeah, they're probably told, you know, I mean, ref it fair dinger, but, you know, don't go overboard because they'll, yeah. they'll be accusing us. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I say for the most part, it was about getting back to business. There was one club in particular that that was very much not true of. And you might be thinking Brisbane, but it was actually the other team in this equation, Canberra, who there's some statements I have to read about how they responded to, you know, having to play in the ARL. Uh, Firstly, you know, it comes straight from the top with Kevin Neal coming out in the wake of the players being forced back to the ARL. The first Raiders player to go before the judiciary this year will get eight to 12 weeks. No risk. (laughs) The right thing is not going to be done. The ARL is all about recrimination. They've never listened to Canberra since its inception, and there's no reason to think they'll start now. That's okay. We've made our bed and we'll cop it. We just hope to be good enough to overcome everything which will be put in our way and have a more than successful year. A game with judiciary. I know. And like, this is your chairman coming out and basically saying, oh, you guys aren't going to get a fair deal this year. <laughs> and, and like when players already think they never get a fair deal, like, what yeah. is that going to do? Oh, God. And, you know, Ricky Stewart then doubled down and said, the attitude shown towards the Canberra club over the years, as far as the judicial system and representative season is concerned, is probably going to get worse. You need cool heads in this situation. Yeah. And Ricky Stewart's not the temperature uh, noggin you yeah. want. 
So, I mean, you'd hope his chairman would be. You'd hope his coach would have something better to say than this from Tim <laughs> Sheens. If you're being made to go to work, otherwise you're not going to get paid. How keen are you to do your job? Well, Tim, I think that puts you in line with everybody else in the country. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to read that first video. If you're being made to go to work, otherwise you're not going to get paid. <laughs> no wonder why people call them prima donnas. <laughs> But, like, every step of the way, like, the Broncos seem to just, like, knuckle down and get on with it. And that was true for, you know, the other Super League clubs. But the Raiders, like, doubled down at every opportunity. Like, some of those comments, like, just absolutely shameful, so petulant and so petty. Another thing they were blowing up about was that their, you know, Jersey flag team wasn't allowed to play in the competition. And I was like, well, yeah, that's because it started two weeks ago. And you said you weren't going to play in it. So, you know, what do you want us to do? And at this point, Ian Head's really teed off on Canberra. He said, Canberra's whinging return ranks among the least gracious things I've encountered in sport. From the coach, captain and chief executive, there was a sustained whine. Sour, thin-lipped speculation about how tough a deal the club would now surely get from Phillip Street. At the temporary end of a miserable story, it was miserable stuff. The Super League cloud still hangs heavy over the game. Yeah, a game that's as bad as Eam will ever get. Yeah, and and I think he's right on the money there. Yeah. I think, like, either don't play or play and get on with it. Yeah. They had a choice and, you know. Not doing themselves any favours. Yeah. But also not doing themselves any favours in certain aspects of this story at this point in time with the ARL. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm going to read you the list of 10 names. Eddie Ward, Kelvin Jeffs. Mark Oaten, Graham West, David Manson, Neil Armand, Tony Maxud, Rob Alexander, Mick Lewis, and Paul McBlain. They were the 10 referees appointed to round two in 1996. So some referees we know very well, some we don't know much about at all, and some very notable omissions. Not bringing about the Super League rest was insane and beyond petty. Yeah. Just because of Bill Harrigan, really. Yeah. But... I really feel terrible for the refs. If you're underdone in experience and thrown to the wolves like that and everybody hates you anyway, it's really unfair. It was the worst situation and so unnecessary. When the rest of the game got back together for this situation not to be able to be worked out. More egregious than Canberra's behavior. Yeah, I agree. So let's get into everything that happened. So the year started badly with the refs losing TNT as a sponsor. <laughs> so that had been the longest um, sponsorship in the game. The going quintessential back to, refs. Yeah, crazy. yeah, yeah. Never got close to being replaced. So, you know, that was over after a 20-year partnership. Then there was deliberations as to what was going to happen, whether the Super League referees were going to be allowed back into the fold. So partly it was the ARL, but it also came from within the Referees Association with the association coming down on the side that they had to come back to the ARL, you know, signing a five-year loyalty agreement and they wouldn't be able to ref in 1996 (laughs) unless they were in for the same amount as the rest of the ARL refs. The Referees Association is its own rugby league administrative (laughs) debacle. I hate it. Uh, But very interestingly, Eric Cox, who was the boss of the referees, who you'll last remember in our story, on air, uh, castigating Bill Harrigan for signing with Super League and saying that as Cox had dug trenches in World War II for the country, Bill Harrigan doesn't have the right to live in the tr- <laughs> in the country. 
More cool heads. So that was Cox in 95. By 96, he said, My view is that 1996 should be treated as a one-off special circumstance year and they should be invited back for this season, with the position to be reviewed at the end of it. To ask them to sign ARL loyalty contracts is unrealistic. All of them have signed contracts with News Limited, and we've had too much of this rubbish already of people signing two and three contracts. If you really care about the game like you bleat on about all the time, yeah. ARL administrators, mm. this is you know you're hurting it. Yeah. And the other thing about that, when you think about the Referees Association, we heard about one of the key reasons for Harrigan jumping ship was how poorly they were paid. And mm. when he got this, you know, offer of a big upgrade uh, and saw them writing five thousand and thought another zero was coming, which it didn't. Mm. Like the upgraded contract was a five thousand dollars <laughs> plus match payments, which would have been, you know, a pittance yeah. for the year. The referees under the ALRL, their conditions were much improved in nineteen ninety six because of the actions of Harrigan and the like going to Super League. Yeah. And the ARL realizing they had to do more to keep the refs they still had. So the refs had, you know, a much better deal in nineteen ninety six than they had in nineteen ninety five. You think they should have maybe thought about what Harrigan and the Super League refs had got them and mm. maybe, you know, yeah. consider that in their thinking. That goes for the players as well. I mean, there should be no animosity between the refs yeah. or the players. Yeah, yeah, totally. But that was a little thing within the Referees Association. But, of course, I don't want to bag out the refs when it's the ARL that needs to wear this. Mm. So Mick Stone, when I say Eric Cox was refs boss, Mick Stone was the refs boss and... Cox was like the ground manager, I think is the official term. So it was in the refereeing realm, but Stone was like day to day. So Stone and Arthurson both came out and said, you know, like, oh, well, you know, we're happy to have them back, but, you know, we have to look out for the ARL refs too. So this was Stone's comment. We had to be careful not to cause any problems with the 82 graded referees who have signed long-term agreements with the league. These blokes have stuck solid all the way through, and I don't want them feeling as though they've been dudded. When it started affecting juniors and refs, that's when common sense had yeah. to prevail. Yeah. You got the players coming back on these like temporary agreements. Mm. What the hell's the difference? Yeah. And all right, that's great that you're loyal to the referees that stayed loyal to you, but are you in the good bloke business yeah. or are you running a professional competition? <laughs> well, we know what the business they're in. <laughs> they're in the good bloke business, but And all of it just meant it was just bad PR. So anytime there was a refereeing controversy, which of course there was going to be, bad look for the ARL. You had a Canberra versus St. George game, which to be fair, like Canberra had Pongier and Lomax both sent off. Uh, could be any game. Yeah, could be any game. Brett Mullins was blowing up at the ref and like all this stuff was going on. Disgraceful performance by Canberra, but it was Canberra, you know, playing an ARL team. Well, and- I've got to be on the ARL side then. You can't combat Lomax and Pongia. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, Canberra were actually fine with those decisions. It was everything else that happened. But by blocking the Super League referees, you're putting a Hubble-sized magnifying glass on yeah. every decision. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And everyone else wanted, you know, the Rugby League Week players poll, the fans poll. You know, everyone wanted the good referees back, yeah. you know. I'm sure the junior referees would have much rather been able to rise through the ranks in a normal manner. And they're getting paid anyway. Yeah. When the Rugby League Week readers' poll results came back and overwhelmingly the fans wanted the Super League refs let back in, Rugby League Week asked Quayle about it and he said, For a start, we're only talking about three referees of regular first grade standard, one of whom says he doesn't want to come back. And when they were with us, we had just as many complaints about referees as we do now. He kind of makes a valid point there. Like, fans are still going to blow up about the refs. 
players are still going to blow up about the refs. But it's, again, this just instantly dismissive attitude of any grievance. But, I mean, Bill Harrigan's a special case too. Yeah. The Michael Jordan of referees, you can't just ignore it. Yeah. And as was made very clear, like, all the Ariel statements were about the fans, serving the fans, doing the right thing by the fans. Mm. How is this in any way serving the fans? So to go with the angina we've given you for the start of the season by not having competitions organised, we're going to make sure that every week the referees give you double the shit. Yeah, exactly. So Sherlock came out in the rugby league week and said, the question still sits there. Why discriminate against these blokes when everyone else was forgiven? I've heard all the reasons and none of them wash. The fact of it is that the game would have benefited from a one-year moratorium and surely that was the only worthwhile consideration. Just a totally wise comment. I think... The ARL lose any claim to the moral high ground just based on this issue. Like, it's as hypocritical as it is pathetic and doesn't serve any stakeholder in the game. No. Like, not even their own interests are served by this decision. Like, I just think it's absolutely disgraceful. We do. But this, you know, sizable issue aside and Canberra's grievances, I wanted to read this quote by John Quayle. So this was on the 27th of March. So just before that second week uh, with all the players back was going to come into it. So Quayle said, it's game day, a tremendous day for the fans of the game. Our hope is that the fans will come back this weekend to celebrate the occasion of the game's restoration. We accept that the appeal lies ahead and will run its course in the courts. But our concern now lies in rebuilding the game. I think it's marvellous that the talk in the bar rooms and the lounge rooms will again soon be about football itself. But how shit the product is. (laughs) (laughs) But from what I remember of the 1996 season, like once all this was over, it kind of did function as just a normal season. Yeah, again, I don't know why, but I can't remember it. But We're going to talk about some of the things that made it not a regular season in the chapters ahead. But I think for the most part, like this kind of came true. Like everyone just got on with watching football. and It was a grind of a season. Yeah. I do remember that. Yeah. But that is basically where we leave this chapter with the players coming back. The issue is that not every player came back. And that is what we are going to talk about in the final part of this chapter, the holdouts. And so those holdouts is how we are going to round out this chapter. We're going to examine the ones who didn't come back or the ones who came back later. Uh, and then we are going to get into the 1996 season proper. So we're getting there. (laughs) (laughs) Stop kidding yourself, mate. We're not getting there. Um, I can't wait to discuss these holdouts, some of the most fascinating stuff in the whole war. Yeah, and the return of a Rugby League Digest favourite. So I'll say no more, but uh, we will be back for all of that next week. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the conclusion of Chapter 27 next week. See you then.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.